In this audio version of Foresight Space Seminars, Scott Hubbard speaks about his passion for Mars and its potential for evidence of past and present life. Let's explore the basics of exploration, importantly, in following the water. You can apply to join the seminars live on foresight.org. Enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome to Foresight Space Group. Really, really excited to have Jan here, the chair of this group. And uh, he'll be introducing uh, Scott and we have a really fun mass presentation ahead of us today. So thanks everyone for joining. Kriyan, take it away. All right. Yes. Thanks for coming, Scott. Thanks everyone for uh, coming and attending. I have the pleasure of uh, introducing Scott Hubbard, who I know mostly um, because uh, I had the pleasure of working under him at NASA Ames for a number of years when he was the director. And that ended some time ago. And I served under many directors, but things started to get kind of spicy when Scott was in charge and that was fun. And then after Pete Warden came and stole his job or whatever, then I worked some, a little bit with Scott afterwards when he was at Stanford and we had some joint activities going, which are still going to some extent. And one of the reasons that things got spicy when he became in charge of Ames was that he has a passion for Mars as do a lot of this, these people in this so-called Mars underground, which is centered on some Ames people, but not exclusively Ames, NASA Ames only. So I don't know what Scott's going to talk about, but it looks like it's going to be about Mars. So let's take it away, Scott, and maybe do a self-introduction to start with, if you don't mind, like 30 seconds or a minute of who you are in your professional arc. Sure. Uh, happy to do that. Good to see you, Creon. I think good to see Steve Jervinson. I haven't seen you in quite a while. Well, absolutely. I'm realizing it was 2014 and I'm pulling up the photo and I was wearing the exact same shirt of all things. <laughs> yeah. You haven't changed size. Good for you. My, my career now extends back almost 50 years and it started at a national lab, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. I went into a startup venture for about five years using some technology that we created at the lab. That got bought and sold, and I left that and went to NASA Ames, where I was for over 20 years. And then when I retired from NASA, I went to Stanford to help train the next generation and put four PhD students through the system and got them uh, actual jobs at the other end. So I'm very proud of uh, what we were able to do. And of all the things I've done in my career, including being director of Ames and a uh, professor over at Stanford and so forth, one thing that I am known for and that is something that continues is reconstructing the Mars program. And I'm going to tell you a story about that. I've done a lot of other things over the years. And if you go to the website that is on the short bio that I sent, I, one of you, one of you folks, Allison, maybe, or, or Lydia, you can see the entire history, <laughs> including my passion for playing music. And I've got stuff on the website that I uh, recorded 50 years ago. And I've got things that I've recorded very recently with my group, the Space Rangers, been able to have a lot of fun in addition to the science. So let me uh, share my screen. And begin to tell you the story of how I came to work on the Mars program. So this is called Exploring Mars, Following the Water. That was our catchphrase. I'll talk more about that in a minute. The media dubbed me the Mars Czar, which is stuck and occasionally still get referenced that way. A lot of the stories I'm going to uh, tell you are just going to be quite brief because I can't really go into it in, in detail, but if you want to know more about how I restructured the Mars program, where it came from failures to where it is today, you can read the book I wrote a few years ago called Exploring Mars. I was very happy to have my buddy Bill Nye, the science guy, write the, the foreword for it. A few basic facts and figures, just to put us all on the same page here. Mars is about half the diameter of Earth, has about a third of the gravity. It has a very thin atmosphere, like Earth at about 100,000 feet, mostly carbon dioxide. And a key thing that you need to know is that the launch window, that is to say how the planets line up for the launch vehicles we currently have on Earth, 
occurs for 20 days every 26 months. So if you miss that launch opportunity, you have to wait with your marching army of engineers and scientists for over two years for that opportunity to to come again. And this puts an extraordinary constraint uh, on what is always difficult. It is rocket science. And the addition of not only budgetary constraints and science objectives of this launch window makes it a very challenging place to go. So why explore Mars and why follow the water? Mars is the most Earth-like of the planets. It's the most likely, although Europa is a strong contender, to have evidence of past or even present life. And we said following the water because that is required for all life as we know it. Always there could be life as we don't know it, but it is a cross-cutting common thread through the four basic objectives and the exploration of Mars. Life, climate, past and present, solid rock geology, and of course, human exploration. Uh, I won't cover human exploration in this talk, but in the Q&A, if you have an interest, I can tell you where I think we are in that objective. Set stage. In the mid-1990s, there was an incredible announcement came out of the White House, Office of the Vice President, that a meteorite had been found on Earth that came from Mars. No doubt about that, because you can test to trap gases. And this meteorite called Allen Hills seemed to contain evidence of microbial life from Mars, created a huge stir in the science community, a lot of skeptics in the science community. And I think today of the four threads of evidence that the group presented, perhaps only one, that is to say the detection of simple organics has stood the test of time. It looks like these worm-like things you see there were probably artifacts of the way that the uh, samples were prepared. Nevertheless, the administrator at the time, a fellow that some of you might know named Dan Golden, who had a theory of operation called Faster, Better, Cheaper, said we need to go to Mars at every opportunity with an orbiter, with a lander. And by the way, I want to bring samples back as early as 2003 or 2005. So he embarked and forced the agency, principally JPL, and the contractor Lockheed Martin into this hurry-up mode because he wanted to follow up on the Allen Hills announcement. What happened was that the two missions, Mars Climate Orbiter and Mars Polar Lander, both disappeared. Mars, uh, this was in, they were launched in 1998 and they disappeared in 19. And for different reasons. So they were faster and cheaper, but not better. Exactly. And most project managers that you talk to will mumble mumble under their breath. Uh, You can have any two you want. (laughs) But when you try to put all three together, it, in this case, resulted in significant failures. One was a miscalculation of converting English to metric units, foot pounds to newtons. The other was a missing line of code in the polar lander that told the spacecraft when it was on the ground. So at that point, there was a failure review board chaired by the very famous Tom Young. And in that report, it said, there's all these technical and budgetary and other problems. But oh, by the way, one of your major problems at NASA headquarters is that nobody is in charge. There are at least five people who think that they are in charge, and that means that no one is in charge. So you really need to get your act together. And that's when Dan Golden reached out, almost literally put his arm around me and said, son, your country needs you. Please come from NASA Ames to NASA headquarters and fix the mess. Almost, those are almost verbatim words. So I set off on a, a journey to go to NASA headquarters and reconstruct the program from a technical perspective, budgetary perspective, programmatic perspective. And in doing that, I had to come up with a new, a new approach. And the, what I called it was program systems engineering. Many of you know what systems engineering is. You build a spacecraft. You want the avionics to work with the structures, work with the computer and so forth. What I had to do was to come up with a decade-long series of missions that 
were in a program where the science, the technology readiness, and the programmatic structure were all aligned. Scott, so at this point, were you a NASA employee, but not working at Ames, rather working at headquarters in D.C.? That's right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'd already been, already set up the Astrobiology Institute at Ames, I'd already managed Lunar Prospector and created the Mars Pathfinder mission. And as I say in the book, I had a track record of success and Golden transferred me from Ames to headquarters. So this approach of program systems engineering has been, I would argue, quite successful. Part of the way in which we structured the program, and I'm talking now about working with the science community, with JPL, with the other NASA centers as needed uh, to put together a program that would allow us to characterize another planet. And on Earth, part of the way you do that is by orbital observation followed by ground truth. Uh, you see something from orbit, you go and examine it on the surface. And so that resulted then in the sequence of uh, Odyssey, an orbiter followed by the Spirit and Opportunity, twin rovers followed by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Phoenix Lander, and so forth. It also distributed the risks out if one of these missions hadn't failed, the next one in the queue would still do important science. So this is what we ended up with. Had a small team in headquarters, very large teams, at JPL and, and some in industry. And we took the entire program down to its roots, and basically nearly a clean sheet of paper, and made it a, a science-driven effort to characterize Mars as a system, uh, including, as I said, the geology, the climate, and particularly the potential for biology. And in doing that, we said the of all the questions we can ask, the first among equals is, did life ever arise on Mars? And for the reasons I outlined, we called that follow the water. Now, Golden was very keen at the time that we had to bring samples back ultimately. So we were also preparing for sample return. And I'll talk about that right at the end of my, my speech here. In between then and now, it was clear that we were not ready scientifically as a community, as a technological needs, or programmatically to go right to a sample return. So I killed off the program that was in place then, and we put this new structure in of a decade-long series of missions, starting with Mars Global Surveyor, then to Mars Odyssey, the twin rovers, Ferret and Opportunity the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the Phoenix Scout to the North Pole, and then ultimately the Curiosity Mars Science Laboratory rover. Subsequent to this sequence of missions, for which I claim some paternity, uh, the Perseverance rover has begun hashing samples for ultimate return. Let us go now to some of the first things we learned when I was at NASA headquarters, which was evidence of recent water, geologically recent water from Mars Surveyor. Areas on Mars were very smooth, but it looked like there had been a recent flash flood. It compares in a very similar manner to what in volcanic structures on Earth, where years ago there was an eruption Mount St. Helens, and then subsequent water runoff created features that looked very similar. Then there was also the spectroscopic evidence about the water on Mars, that the Northern Hemisphere, very flat, continues to suggest the location of a large ancient ocean, probably quite shallow. And then there's this green area here. This is uh, mineralogical information from one of the instruments, and it detected something on Earth we only find after long exposure to water, which is uh, a mineral called hematite. I just remember this green area, and I'll come back to it later. It's about the size of Connecticut. So I had big decisions to make very rapidly as soon as I became the very first Mars program director, or Mars czar, as they call me. There were two spacecraft in development at Lockheed Martin. They were near duplicates of the ones that had failed. And a quick review showed 
lots of the same sorts of mistakes in pursuing faster, better, cheaper. And we had to decide, were we going to fly nothing, one thing, or both things? And the decision was to fix the flaws for the orbiter, which was renamed Odyssey. Odyssey was flying in 2001, reference to the movie, obviously. And send that at the next opportunity. And we're very glad that happened because the community got, almost as soon as Odyssey arrived, very powerful indication of large amounts of water ice. The instrument actually detected hydrogen, but the form seemed to be beyond doubt that at the most of the planet, there was water ice. And at the poles, particularly the North Pole, almost 60 to perhaps 80 percent water ice by volume. Very powerful result that came from the follow the water philosophy and pointed toward places where uh, ice could be there as a scientific objective and a resource. Then, after some considerable discussion and thought, but was announced by me, <laughs> as you'll see in a second, was twin rovers, not just one, but two, to go to different places on the planet. And Spirit landed in January of 2004. A few weeks later, Opportunity landed also in January. and. When I was signing off on the so-called mission success criteria, I couldn't find anybody at headquarters or JPL who thought they would last longer than about six months because of the accumulation of dust on the solar panels. These were not nuclear-powered. These were solar-powered vehicles. But Spirit lasted seven years, and Opportunity survived 14 years. So think about that, and we'll have a little quiz in a minute about how that could have happened. But before we do, let's go to Mars. Takes on average about seven months. This direct entry with the so-called cruise stage you saw dropping away was something I first proposed for the Mars Pathfinder mission in 1990. So you have to bleed off energy coming at many kilometers per second through the atmosphere using multiple techniques. Mars is the worst combination. It's a thin atmosphere, so you have to use a heat shield, which you can see dropping away here, then this cocoon, which contains the rover, and then a supersonic parachute is deployed as well. And finally, you get from about 17,000, 13,000 miles an hour to zero in seven minutes. Now, the terminal landing for this was something I proposed, again, from Mars Pathfinder, which was airbags. And as you can see, it bounced and bounced about 20 times for Spirit, about 30 times for Opportunity, but it turned out to be a robust and inexpensive way of landing on the surface of Mars. What were the airbags filled with, just out of curiosity? Kevlar. No, what were they filled with? What gas? Oh, that was just a, a nitrogen gas. Nothing special. All you had to do is to be aware of the temperature at the surface of Mars. Landing in the day like this, it can actually approach what we would regard as room temperature. But there was a small bottle on board for that inflation process. So then after you've been traveling all this time on batteries since leaving the cruise stage or the mothership, the first thing you do is to get control of the power. And open the solar panels. This is obviously speeded up quite a bit from the actual event. And then raise the mass, uh, begin to take a look around, and, and then do what good robots are supposed to do, which is to phone home. You see the little paddle there sending back signals that say, I'm safe here on the surface. Was course. that relaying through one of the orbiters? Yes, there were two options. The primary option was relaying through Odyssey or a surveyor. The backup option was direct to Earth, of course, at a much, much lower bit. What would be fine. The follow the water philosophy worked well again in the sense that this picture of the ripples on part of the exposed Martian surface there are characteristic, sedimentologists say, of uh, flowing fluid over long periods of time. These little ripples indicate that where this is where opportunity landed, 
that it happened to be right next to an outcrop that had evidence of flowing water in the past. In addition to that, the onboard chemistry set found that the hematite, you remember that little Connecticut-sized area in the green I showed you a few minutes ago that I said was from orbit, considered to be hematite. Here's the ground truth. Uh, these are about the size of wild blueberries. There's millions of them. It's what caused the orbiter to, uh, to see this. And on Earth, at least, such deposits are always associated with liquid water. So another step in verifying that there had been at one time, probably two billion years ago, uh, in this case, uh, liquid water on the surface, possibly there is still underground water, and I'll come to that uh, more in a moment. I, I have one of the earth ones here, just if you want to see. This one's they're called Milky Marbles. Got phenomenon formed underground mineralization. Um, Very cool. Yeah, the one I have here on Earth broke open. You can see how it formed around a inner core. It looks like a Whopper chocolate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. So coming back to the question I posed a little while ago, 14 years, how did that happen? Anybody want to guess what these things are that were captured by spirit and opportunity? Dust devils. Yes, dust devils. We uh, mean the solar panels. And uh, you guessed it. They cleaned off this, the uh, panels. And this is, I usually say when I give this talk, the only time in my 50-year career that Mother Nature has helped me. Usually you're battling Murphy's Law. And if anything can go wrong, it will. In this case, although dust devils were known from the Viking era, no one expected this result. It was a result of good engineering, clever rover driving, and the completely serendipitous appearance of these dust devils. The two rovers were able to last much, much longer than their predicted life. But wait, dust the, dust devils, the dust devils cleaned off both rovers? Yes. Yeah. They both landed at latitudes where the daily cycle of temperature drives this very thin atmosphere, much like in the high desert on the earth. And local dust devils are a very common occurrence. And the only reason that we lost spirit after seven years is it got stuck in something that's the equivalent of quicksand. And they were not able to survive. Uh, they couldn't get to the proper spot to be able to satisfy to, to survive the Martian winter season. As I said, clever rover driving was involved in this, if parking it on a hill to increase the cosine theta so you get the maximum insulation. It kept wearing out its battery spirit did trying to get out of the quicksand. But the dust devils are not the only dust feature. Sometimes dust is a global storm occurs about once every 10 years. And this is what the sun sky looked like at the Opportunity site. It went from a bright sun and a clear sky to complete obscuration. And so the solar power reaching the panels went effectively to zero. In 18, 2018, we lost contact with the rover and it was finally declared end of mission in February 2019. Just to be clear here on this set of images, although the image on the left looks darker, the image on the right is actually the darkest image, correct? Yes. Yeah. The, what you want to look at is the gradual obscuration of the dot that is the sun. This has been color corrected to try to make the point that you had sunlight and not much else obscuring the sky to where the looking up from the rover, you would see almost no sunlight at all and a very obscured dust laden sky now this episode or odyssey this 14 year journey was captured in a documentary that i would recommend to you called goodnight oppie and i make this is me on the right 20 what 22 years ago thanks ed i am indeed very where i announce it to be able to announce that we are returning to mars this time in force with twins, Mars twin rovers. Uh, that appears in very briefly in the beginning of Goodnight Copy, which tells the story of how the operators, the scientists and engineers came to 
feel that these rovers, particularly Opportunity, were an extension of them and almost human. They began to really identify with this emissary of the human race on another world. What's next? I had to decide what we're going to do in 2005. And we went back to orbit with much, much higher resolution, about 30 centimeter target resolution on the surface. Ground penetrating radar, multispectral imaging. And this has been a fabulous work. I've been able to distinguish between the water and wind processes on the surface. Uh, here you see a, a sort of a PR shot uh, where that's opportunity on the surface is photographed from about uh, four or 500 kilometers and the orbit of Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. The science has been fabulous. They found a, using the ground penetrating radar, a, a, a giant here under the surface, just under the surface, that if you melted it, would have as much water as, as Lake Superior. Other things that have been found that are just stunning, ice cliffs up to 300 feet deep under about six inches of dusted rocks. And then the soil of, with the kind of ice that I demonstrated from the Odyssey mission down to about six feet deep. And then in some cases, you're looking at the side of this cliff up to 300 feet that includes ice before you get to, to bedrock. And more recently, there has been perhaps the detection of liquid water, something like a kilometer under the surface. Uh, this is from a European spacecraft using an Italian radar. The radar echoes suggest a, a liquid water interface. Other people in the science community aren't quite so sure, but it's the first real indication that there could be modern water, that is to say, actual liquid water deposits a, a mile or so under the surface. And then we went to the North Pole in a program to continue to follow the water by seeking to verify that the ice deposits that were seen to be so abundant near the North Pole were in fact correct. And this landed at the Mars Northern Plains <clears throat> in 2008. And this is one of the first things that were found. If you look in the corner, these are two trenches dug by the claw from this static lander. And down in the left-hand corner, three pebbles and an enlargement of that. One of those pebbles was taken to the onboard chemistry set and confirmed, yes, that is in fact water ice. And in the thin atmosphere of Mars, it sublimed. It went straight from the solid phase into the gaseous phase and disappeared. A fabulous confirmation of what had been seen from orbit. And then the, the capstone of the rovers, you see here the rover family tree on the right hand side is the little bitty Mars Pathfinder rover, able to go 100 meters and weighed about um, 20 kilograms or so. And then we see the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, full-fledged explorers weighing in at something like 120 to 150 kilograms. And then a metric ton radioisotope powered rover that was part of the Mars Science Lab mission and became known as Curiosity. This was designated to be sent to Gale Crater. The you know, crater is something like a time capsule on Mars in the sense that the basin, the bottom of it, is perhaps as much as 2 billion years old. But as it filled in over time, and therefore as you would climb up the crater, you went to younger and younger territory. So this was a way of going and examining Mars from some of its very earliest days to much more recent. Now, to get there, turns out airbags don't scale. One of the features that was put in that you'll see in a minute is something called the sky crane. Now, the entry using heat shield is about the same. A larger supersonic parachute to slow it down. You see the heat shield being dropped away. But in this case now, the way to get to the surface, because airbags can't work at that at a metric ton scale, you have a mothership. Uh, and then as that slowly reduces velocity to about one meter per second, 
you gently lower the rover onto its wheels. It turns out this was the least worst option <laughs> for designing how to get a metric ton rover uh, to the surface of Mars. So it gently comes down, lands on the surface uh, again on its wheels. You cut the cables and then the mothership flies about a kilometer away or so, uh, so that you don't contaminate the local surface. Now, this is a truly an extraordinary instrument. It's still operating on the surface of Mars, very high resolution like imaging capability. There are two. Pardon? There are two operating on the surface of Mars, correct? Two radioisotope powered ones. This was the first one in landing in 2012. And then, of course, Perseverance followed uh, a number of years later to begin the sample return campaign. When this was created, and the funds available only allowed for one to be uh, one to be built, and of course, incorporating radioisotope power means that even now, over a decade later, it's still going strong. The uh, discoveries have been quite extraordinary. You drill the surface, evidence of a past habitable environment, and some simple organics, chloromenzene, clean fluid. Analysis of the weather by this vehicle indicates a possible briny water cycle. Methane has been sniffed on the surface of Mars and observed from Earth, and it comes in burps. And Curiosity has detected these well above background. And methane, of course, can be produced by biology. It can also be produced by interaction of heat out of the surface with groundwater and whatever minerals are there. Nevertheless, following up on the methane is a very important future science objective. This, to me, is one of the most, this is about two or three years old now. The paper that announced this showed, for the first time, complex organics on the surface of Mars. Not just simple things like you see here benzene and propane, but a very complex organic called kerogen. And on Earth, at least, kerogen is the leftovers as things like algae and woody plants deteriorate. Now, am I saying that there were trees on Mars? No, I can't go that far. But we have now, as a science community, detected complex organics for the first time using the, the large instrument that's on board Curiosity. So where has all of this led us? The potential that life emerged in the past during the period when there was almost without a doubt a lot of liquid water on the surface in a habitable environment, it would have been warmer. We've detected carp uh, complex organics. The community, I think, has coalesced a consensus <laughs> that Ancient life could have emerged on Mars, and we have now the ability to select sites, coming to that in a second, where you could go and find these preserved fingerprints of life. Now, is modern life possible? Maybe this detection of potentially liquid water a mile beneath the surface is very tantalizing. The methane data is also suggestive, but this is going to require probably some deep drilling. And currently, the robotic capability to do that is not technologically ready. Some people are saying, let's make this a priority for human beings when they get there. We'll see. Nevertheless, on the strength of the ancient life potential and the diversity of Mars, the National Academy of Sciences, both 10 years ago and just last year, recommended that the next most high-priority strategic mission, so-called flagship mission for planetary science, be Mars sample return. That has been now consistent over two what are called decadal surveys. This is where the National Academy, under contract with NASA, goes and surveys the entire community and says, what's the top priority? And the life question continues to be the top priority. And the Mars sample return is the mission that, that the community has endorsed twice. 
Now you can say, why sample return? There's a couple of reasons in the box. And the samples can be analyzed by many laboratories as opposed to just whatever you can take to the surface of Mars. Hundreds of researchers rather than a handful of PIs. Instruments that thus far, no one's been able to figure out how to take to the surface of Mars, particularly for absolute chronology. That's done on Earth by radioactive techniques, where you look at the decay of things you've activated in a cyclotron or something equivalent, some sort of particle accelerator. And then finally, you can follow the pathways of discovery. We're still learning things about the moon from the samples that were brought back in the Apollo era. So the first step in this has already occurred. As we discussed a minute ago, Perseverance landed in 2020. And just before, in fact, it was being finished just as COVID hit everywhere. Amazing bit of engineering had to take place using remote means sometimes. So it is now on the surface of Mars, <clears throat> inducting in situ science and picking up a cache of samples. To get all the samples back, though, it requires quite a, an orchestra of space uh, working together. This video I'm going to show you now represents the current thinking about returning samples. And we can talk a little bit about the problems that Mars Sample Return has encountered from a, a programmatic and technical perspective. So it's possible that this scenario might change, but the idea is that the samples are on board Perseverance, maybe up to 30 of them, and specially designed canisters that uh, contain the cores that were drilled out by Perseverance, that those will all be put in the nose cone of something called the Mars Ascent Vehicle. The Mars Ascent Vehicle with high reliability, it's a, one of the single point failures, would uh, ignite a uh, solid rocket engine and accelerate up to about 500 kilometers above the surface of Mars. And then would let go something the size of a very large soccer ball, a canister that would be captured by a waiting orbiter being built by the Europeans, European Space Agency, that would be sealed up and returned by that waiting orbiter to Earth using solar electric power. It would be much more than a seven-month journey. The Earth entry vehicle containing the samples would be then dropped off in the Utah desert. If all of this happens as planned, I think we're going to learn some extraordinary things. Here's what 21 of the tubes have contained thus far. It is an amazing array of different types of geology from using one of the instruments on board, the Perseverance rover called a Raman spectrometer. Uh, I am told by the principal scientist, project scientist, on Perseverance, Ken Farley, that it contains enormous amounts of organics. So I and the community, I think, really have high hopes that if when these samples come back, we will hopefully observe the fingerprints of life. Uh, it would be a profound moment in, um, in the history of humanity, I think. So let me just end up now. Oh, before we go, we have to talk about the Ingenuity Helicopter. That was a joint effort of JPL, Ames, and Langley. It's flown 64 times. It was carried as a technology experiment, but its value, I'll show you a little video here of what it looks like. Its value, and both as a scout, as a reconnaissance tool, but also to be able to look over the next hill, see places that the science team might or might not want to go to, uh, this is what you're seeing here is, I think, test number three, just to demonstrate that it could go out and come back down to the same spot. But an amazing piece of engineering development. I remember when we looked at this decades ago, Creon, Larry Lemke looked at it and thought that it would be very difficult to get a helicopter operating at Mars. But more recently, it's been done. 
In fact, there are now proposals. I think it's a joint proposal of Ames, JPL, and Langley to build a much larger helicopter that can carry science instrumentation far above what's been done to date, maybe as much as a 30 kilogram science payload, and potentially showing here, potentially serve as a backup to bring samples to the samples retrieval lander. To conclude, we know today that Mars is on the surface, at least, and dry and seemingly pretty dead. We know that in the past, it had abundant liquid water. I am not going to even put qualifiers on that anymore from all the data we've got. But in the future, people always ask me, can we go there with human beings and continue this exploration? And I say, we can do this. Thanks very much for the invitation. And we're, I think, just right at about 45 minutes. And yep, and happy to answer questions. Thank you so much. This was absolutely wonderful. You're muted. I'm going to ask you to unmute and you can take it away. All this right. Yeah. Amazing. I'm going to request. Yeah. Great talk, Scott. This is fantastic. Seated my wildest dreams. This is amazing. I want to request permission, Allison, to extend another five or 10 minutes because we got a late start and it was a lot of content. And we have a lot of questions from, we have some questions from the audience and I have a lot of questions, but I'm not going to ask a lot of questions because I'm tired of being that guy. I'm going to roll all my questions into one to get it started. And my questions were in the form of uh, this versus that. So I'm going to mention a few of them, tell a tiny little anecdote, and then ask you to riff on this, Scott. So there's the geological features that suggest flowing water, and there's the flowing water versus flowing carbon dioxide question. There is the question of water versus brine that might not even be able to support life. There is the question of kind of JPL versus the world. Like this is getting to be hot now. And so it's like, it's no longer arguably JPL owning the planet Mars. Uh, they've got to be a little bit uh, more uh, inclusive. And, and the anecdote I want to tell, so let's say that H2O versus CO2, water versus brine, JPL versus the world. And then I want to just say a tiny little anecdote, which I think occurred on your watch, Scott, at Ames. Uh, there was a lecture after the first two years, maybe, of the Spirit Rover's mission. And this guy, they had all these cameras on the Spirit Rover that were not just on the mast, but on the legs and under the belly. And he did this slideshow where he was like, first we saw this thing off in the distance, and then we ran crawled over to it and then we looked at it and then we drilled into it and then we analyzed the rocks and then we saw this other thing we were interested in and we moved over there but on the way we found these blueberries and that we investigated them and it was like it was a year-long thing about how you know it's like camping on mars except it was a, a robot being controlled from earth and at the end of this whole thing where he had given us this virtual my tour through the grand canyons of mars type of thing I asked him, I said, this is all very nice that you did a year's worth of exploration with a robot. You're a geologist, I said to him. If you were sitting on Mars with your magnifying lens and your pickaxe, how long would it have taken you to get all these results? And he mm -hmm. said, oh, about 45 minutes. Anyway, that was the anecdote. And then I wanted to ask you this HO versus CO2, water versus brine and JPL versus the world. And then we'll turn it over to Chris Boschhausen and other people who are list. Okay. I'll say, if I forget to cover some of this, let me know. Starting backwards uh, with the anecdote that had to be Steve Squires, who I've known for 30 years. And he, I think, still makes this point. It is part of the discussion that's ongoing about why humans to the moon or to Mars, what can they do? And the robots that we've got today, I think even though they're starting to incorporate AI and the Perseverance landing as uh, hazard avoidance, are still not as capable as human beings in an unstructured environment. And this is critical. If you transported Steve Squires to the surface of Mars in our bipedal structure, which has been evolving for 2 million years, he can look around knowing everything he knows as a bio, as a geologist or even astrobiologist and say, there is the place we need to go 
and investigate. And so that integrative adaptive capability is one I think that still gives human beings an edge over uh, the robots we can create today. Now, the either or, let's see, one was brine. And indeed, if you look at what is present today, the the possible detection through sounding radar of this layer that could be water a mile beneath the surface, that most likely is so heavily mineralized that it is brine. And now the question, if you remember, as we were setting up the Astrobiology Institute years ago, one of the questions that came in early was, how far can you push the environment in which life can not only appear, but prosper? And it turns out, of course, that there are brine-loving organisms that are perfectly happy in the the places that you see as you fly into SFO, you see the cargo salt flats and you can have massive amounts of salts of various types in there. And the, the organisms, the extremophiles are very happy. There are places. Water, water versus CO2 and JPL versus world. Okay. Water versus CO2. The reason that water tends to rise to the top is at least with the measurements I showed from Odyssey the confirmation from Phoenix is that the the chemical, the chemistry that is observed is in fact water ice. Now, it's dirty water ice. It's got all kinds of other stuff in it. People that propose ISRU, in situ resource utilization, still struggle with how are you going to uh, filter this, distill this, and so forth, and make it useful for human beings. And JVL versus the world, that's, I think, a, oh, an interesting programmatic question. When on my term as the first Mars program director, one of the things I had to balance was their undeniable capability uh, of doing extraordinary engineering with the need to be directed by the science community. And the science community is not, there are scientists at JPL, some very good ones. But part of my job, and I think it's continued until recently, the current Mars program director is just a half-time job. I don't see how he can do what needs to be done, but I'm not there anymore. And I think that being sure that the engineering doesn't over, overwhelm the, the science is part of what good leadership does. Being able to utilize the capabilities that Ames, Langley, JPL, JSC, Marshall, and so forth requires some leadership and some thought. And that's what I tried to do anyway, was to be sure we took advantage of where the best talent was. And in the case, I'll tell one short anecdote. When I had created what became the Mars Pathfinder mission, but was told by the associate administrator, Lynn Fisk, that we had to hand that off to JPL to build it. Uh, Tony Spear, who was the project manager at JPL, wasn't even aware of the challenges of entry, descent, and landing, and what kind of temperatures you had to be able to withstand. And so after a fair amount of discussion, Ames, in fact, got tapped along with Langley to be part of the team. And being part of the team, whether it's astrobiologists or whether it's entry system specialists, it helps connect JPL to the rest of the, the rest of the world. But it's an ongoing issue because JPL is the only, I'm going to use an oddball term here, the only FFRDC in what is otherwise a civil service system. And so all of those employees don't work for NASA directly, they work for Caltech. They're also the only people, or the only group that's ever landed anything successfully on Mars and they've done it multiple times, although not 100% successfully uh, in the whole world. So- yeah, The Chinese just did it though. Oh, they did? Okay, fantastic. This is, it's opening up to the world. I wanna also congratulate uh, you and your successors on the clean interface for the sample return. NASA gets it up to off Mars, collects the samples, gets them off Mars, and ESA returns them to Earth. Very clean interface, just transfer the soccer ball. Um, now we have audience, and Chris has patiently had his hand up for some time. Welcome, Chris. Please ask your question. 
Hi, everybody. Yeah, Scott, thanks for that amazing presentation. That was really great to, to catch up on, on some of the history there. So I just have a question piggybacking off one of Creon's, which was on the question of anthropocentrism or biocentrism in our approach to science. And I always get concerned, and largely this is filtered by the more popular versions of things NASA Public Affairs Office puts out, whether everything, whether it's a gully, they're like, water must have flowed here. Or this is a rock with some unusual organics in it that can only be made by life. So has our, it seems to me the fundamental question which drives our exploration, is there life versus, wow, this is an amazing planet. What's on it? What the hell's going on here? And so how in your experience has that um, perceived bias maybe influenced the approach to science and what things we might have missed? What are the lost opportunities? What have we gained from that approach? Yeah, I, the, what's very instructive is to look back at the hubris during the period the Viking mission was being created. Uh, it was the first drawings were probably in the late 60s. They launched and landed in 70. And at that point, people as eminent as Carl Sagan said, obviously, all we have to do is to go there, dig up a scoop of dirt, put it into a radio, radioisotope release experiment that in fact was partially built by people at Ames, and we'll see, voila, that life had existed on Mars. And while the results of that, the PI, the principal investigator for that, still likes to argue that he may have seen life, the consensus of the community was, whoa, we were way too arrogant in thinking that we knew so much about life that we could put it in a Petri dish and observe the results. We now know that all the life on Earth, only about a percent could actually be cultured in a Petri dish using that radioactive release, the carbon-14-15 experiment. And so at that time, post-Viking, the Mars science community moved from detecting life to habitable environments. Okay, let's see if we can box this thing in. We know on Earth where the limits of some life are. This led, by the way, to, and then the astrobiology world, the really intense scrutiny of uh, extremophiles. Life can exist in places that we didn't realize. So I think your point is well taken, that the community has become much more careful about what it believes that it is detecting these results, of course, are always peer-reviewed. It's a result of not only people at a given center, even a given investigation looking at it, but people from, from all over the world cross-investigating each other, which is one of the value of getting the samples back. But I feel like they, they haven't gone far enough, right? They may be a bit more filtered in their early assessment of conclusions, but their assessment of early conclusions, but the fundamental question is still, it's still a version of is there life on Mars versus this is just a geologically fascinating planet. What's there? And I think we probably, there might be a bunch of missed science because we're still asking the wrong question. What you have, Chris, if yeah. I may interject, yeah. and Scott knows more than I do, is yeah. in some sense, one of the uh, struggles or dynamics that's going on behind the scenes here is the, <laughs> there was the planetary geologists and now there's the astrobiologists, and there's only some overlap between their fields of inquiry. Is that correct, Scott? It's gotten better and better. When, he, when we first created the field of astrobiology, largely at Ames, 28 years ago, they were seen as a separate entity. When I built the NASA Astrobiology Institute, one of the first things I had to do was to get people that spoke in terms of parsecs and people that spoke in terms of genomes and people that spoke in terms of uh, hematol all learn each other's language. And I think it's much, much better now. Astrobiology is part of the landscape. The, the National Academy Committee that looks at these things is called the Committee on Astrobiology and Planetary Science. I think that incorporating this bigger picture is, or this other picture, this adjacent picture, has been quite successful, still got a ways to go. And to go back to the fundamental question that I think is on the table here is, are we by a singular focus or apparently focus on, was there life on Mars? Are we neglecting other science? 
And I participated a couple of years ago in something called MassWig, the uh, Mars Architecture Science Working Group. And what we said was, if we had a program of smaller spacecraft, what kind of science could we do at polar regions and other types of geology? And there's quite a lot. There is quite a lot. I take your point. It is, it's not only just uh, about life on Mars, but it's about the entire planet. Thanks. This is great. We are at five minutes past the hour. And Allison, with your permission, I'd like to open it up. One last call for audience questions. If you wish, just unmute and speak up. Go for it, please. Well, I'll just show Mars just so we can see some. Martian meteorite would be remiss if I didn't at least let us look up close. It's got trapped air bubbles with atmosphere in it too. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Steve, yeah. do you ever just pop one and inhale it? Try to ingest some of it. No, I have not drilled into it. Uh, and this one has not been drilled into, but another one just like it was. And that's a great confirmation that the isotope analysis of the substrate, the main substrate correlates also with the secondary proof that the trapped atmosphere is Martian. Oh, out of curiosity on that front, Scott or Steve, how they say, oh, we look at the trapped bubbles and using the isotopes, we can tell this, that, and the other thing. How the heck do they know what the isotopic ratios of the gases on Mars are now, much less in the distant past, were? Uh, the isotope is of the solid material, and every moon and planet in our solar system can be analyzed remotely for that. And they specifically look at oxygen fractionation lines, the ratio of oxygen 16, 17, and 18. And every planetary body so far uh, has unique signature uh, in our solar system. Yeah, but this, the baseline is from Viking. Viking did the atmosphere bars as it is today. There are various models. MAVEN is a good example of how Mars atmosphere changed over time. But the signature of the noble gases from the Viking landings almost 50 years ago now is so different. And it's such a nearly point for point match of what's trapped in the Mars meteorites that I don't think the community has any doubt. Okay, then last call. Oh, Allison's got her hand up. So let's term, let's, let's climax with the Allison's whatever. What do you want to say? No pressure on me then. I just want to point to the last bit that you mentioned in your presentation about the human in the picture. Could you say a few words to that? Uh, maybe we can stop there. Sure. I've been uh, interested in and engaged in human exploration side of the house for a long time. Probably most notable when I was the only NASA person on the Columbia Accident Investigation Board and had the rather staggering job of trying to figure out why the vehicle was lost and the crew died. So I got very deep into the, the shuttle program, its technology, and its culture. Much more recently, as NASA leadership has moved more clearly more rigorously toward actually having a human exploration program beyond space station, actually to the moon and on to Mars. I've been investing some of my time in that. Uh, Bruce Joukowsky, who was the, the PI for Maven, and I wrote an op-ed about a year and a half ago in which we said, this is all fine. The engineering, you're building the SLS, you're building Orion, Starship's coming along. That's terrific engineering, but why are you going? What's the science objectives for humans at the moon, or in my case, at Mars. And it stirred the pot quite a bit. Net result was that Bruce and I and our friend Clyde Neal, who's a lunar scientist, were asked to come to headquarters and speak to Pam Melroy, who's the deputy administrator, about what we were concerned about. And it was quite an interesting meeting. And in the end, what came out of that was for the very first time, NASA both human exploration and science have commissioned a study by the National Academy of Sciences on what should be the human, the science objectives for the human exploration of Mars. Never happened before that these two groups would get together. So there's a, I don't know if you track what comes out of NASA news releases, but they are now calling for people who would wish to volunteer to be part of this National Academy study. So some of the people on this call might be might want to volunteer themselves. So I I think for the first time, I've been watching this for a long time. For the first time since the Apollo era, I can detect some constancy of purpose in getting humans beyond low Earth orbit. 
Wonderful. It's about time. Thank you so much. This was absolutely mind-boggling. Thank you very much. It was a really wonderful, elaborate presentation. And yeah, you've done you've done a lot of work in this area and we're pretty grateful for it. Yes, Scott, this is a great show you got here. And uh, it's going to be on YouTube at some point in the not too distant future and it'll get a lot of views. This is a really good one. So I really appreciate your time and patience and enthusiasm and life's work. This is just amazing. So I uh, hope to see you soon. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. <laughs>